It's Monday, November 19th, and this is The Daily Dive. The president weighed in on some of the biggest stories driving the news over the weekend in an interview with Fox News. Trump addressed whether he thought the Saudi crown prince played a role in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, saying, will anybody really know? He was also hesitant to confirm whether there will be any more staff shakeups coming soon. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to discuss that and some of the last House and Senate races that were decided over the weekend. Next, if you drive in Los Angeles, just be aware that the LAPD and Palantir are watching you. Being used by stations across the country, police have increasingly turned to using automatic license plate reader systems as a tool to help track down bad guys. Privacy groups warn that officers could be using it as a surveillance tool, possibly targeting people that aren't involved in criminal activity. Mark Harris, writer at Wired, joins us for more on how police are using this tool. Finally, in a case that started off as a feel-good story and has now turned into a fraud case, a New Jersey couple started a GoFundMe page for a homeless vet and raised over $400,000. We now find out it's all a scam. They were all in on it. My producer Miranda joins us for the GoFundMe Paying It Forward scam. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I have great people. I will make some changes, but not very many. I'm very happy with my cabinet, other than, you know, a couple of exceptions. And even there, I'm not unhappy. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. The president had an interview with Chris Wallace on Fox News, talked about some of the biggest topics that are going around right now. The murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, some of his rhetoric on the press, and then some more staff changes that are going on. It's been widely rumored that Chief of Staff John Kelly and DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen are on the outs. They might be leaving pretty soon. Let's start there. He's been kind of wishy-washy on it. He doesn't want to commit to anything. Obviously, he always likes to just let it happen when it does. That's kind of the word that they're both of those people are going to be out. That's right. The president sort of hit pause on the chaos and the firing in the White House up leading up into the election. That pause ended when he fired Jeff Sessions and just days after the midterm elections. And now you're right. There's a few more folks. He uh, was uncommittal on Kristen Nelson, who's the head of the Department of Homeland Security, John Kelly, his chief of staff. We are hearing that Nelson could be gone any day now. She may have gotten a reprieve that got her past Thanksgiving as he's trying to, we're told, find a replacement before he announces her departure. Although we also have heard that Kelly has sort of lobbied to keep her in that role. She was his deputy when he was the head of DHS. If we forget that Kelly, that was his first job in this administration, was the DHS secretary. They are allies. He is still quite favorable towards her. He still thinks she's doing a good job. Other fronts, Ryan Zinke, who's the head of the Interior Department, sources are telling us his days in the administration could be numbered. There's just a number of positions that the president is weighing, nixing the person currently holding it and replacing them with someone else. On to Jamal Khashoggi, American intelligence agencies, the reports are kind of on a few different sides, but they've basically concluded that the Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman did order or was very involved in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. The State Department has said, well, we haven't made a final report yet. The president said something should be coming out today or tomorrow where they're going to say, you know, somebody did it, who did it. But this puts the president in a bind and how to respond to them and hold them accountable 
and still maintain Saudi Arabia as an ally in the Middle East. This is one of those instances where we see sort of the mechanisms of government, the CIA, Treasury, who put sanctions on some of those. They said we were responsible for the journalist Kushigi's death last week. Moving ahead, laying blame, saying who did this. And the president not quite willing to go along with what his right. own government is telling him. <laughs> he said in an interview with Fox that we will never really know if the crown prince had a role. And we also know that the president has continued to want to make arms sales to the Saudis. That would be the purchase of American-made weapons. And we see members of Congress pushing to stop those sales because of this. But as we've seen before with President Trump, even a report like we saw with Russia doesn't always convince him to back away from foreign policy positions that are counter to what the government's telling him. Let's move on to the midterms. As you said the last time, the midterms that never end. It seems like we are getting to the end of it now. In the Senate race in Florida, they had to do uh, you know, a machine recount, a hand recount. Bill Nelson has conceded to Rick Scott now, and that changes the dynamic of the Senate to 53 Republican seats to 47 Democratic seats. There is a concession in Florida. We also saw at the end of this past week, the Florida governor's race wrapped up. Most of the House races have wrapped up. So the Senate appears to be settled at this point. We will see Republicans with a pretty good majority. They can lose three votes on anything. It's a little bit more than they had going into this. Three votes is not a whole lot, especially when you consider that there still are some independent-minded or moderate members of the U.S. Senate. But it is a sign that McConnell's going to have some flexibility moving forward to work with the president and try to pass some very limited number of bills through the Senate on a straight majority. On the House side in California, very liberal state, but in Orange County, California was a very Republican stronghold there for the longest time. And there was just a Democratic sweep now. The last race had been decided. Gil Cisneros defeated Republican Young Kim there. And that raises the total number to about 38 seats that the Democrats have gained nationwide. I think everyone thinks California and they think liberal, but it's a quite diverse state with a lot of different voting populations. And Orange County was quite Republican for a long time. There's almost no Republicans left there or in much of the state for that matter. Kevin McCarthy, who will be the minority leader in the House, is a Republican from California, but he's an oddity in the state, not that many. And it's causing a lot of consternation among California Republicans about what they do now. Can they rebuild their party? And it really sort of underscores the nation shift that we saw in this election. Areas that were urban and suburban very much going towards Democrats and away from Republicans and areas that were quite rural coming even more Republican than they were before. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. car had been used in a murder in the middle of the night and all they had was a grainy surveillance camera like you might find on a convenience store. Joining us now is Mark Harris, freelance writer for Wired. We found your article on Wired. If you're driving Los Angeles, Palantir and the LAPD are watching. And it was just a great read. This is a technology that they've been using for quite some time now, but in recent years it's gotten an upgrade and it looks like the LAPD and other police stations in the area are using this more and more. It has to do with, with a thing called a ALPRs, Automatic License Plate Reader Systems. What are these and how are police using them? Basically, they're just cameras. They're cameras stuck on traffic lights, sometimes on overpasses, freeways, and they're cameras that watch every car going by. 
and they use computer vision to like artificial intelligence basically to recognize the license plate on every car that goes by and then they log that data these have been around for a long time and they've uh, been used to find stolen cars and some private companies use them to track down you know repossessed cars so what's interesting about palantir and the new system los angeles has is the way that it keeps that data in a database for many years and then it can use that data and it can mix it with other databases to basically build up a really comprehensive pattern of all the cars in the city. Yeah, I mean, it really looks like it's become a, a very valuable tool for police searching for, you know, vehicles, like you said, either stolen vehicles or beyond when they're even looking for suspects. And they've had success with it. It's a really powerful tool to help them solve crime. There was one example that I explored in the story that I found through some public records. A car had been used in a murder in the middle of the night, and all they had was a grainy surveillance camera like you might find on a convenience store. They couldn't have the license plate from that, but because they could identify the vehicle type, they can do a search on the Palantir, which which has uh, details of all the cars that are registered in the Los Angeles region. They could then travel back through time to look at some of those vehicles, and they found one that had a particular modification that, on the suspect vehicle. They saw that it had been painted a different color, but they could travel back and look at pictures of this car driving on the roads from years before, and it was the same as the car that they were looking for. And then, you know, it, eventually they identified a suspect and they convicted the person of murder. So it's a super powerful tool right. that police officers can use. But the flip side of that is because you've got all this data in the database, you're, you're really got information on people who aren't in the criminal justice system, who haven't committed any crime. And then there is the worry that putting all of this power at the hands of the police means that they can search through and find out about where basically anyone was at any time in the last few years. The LAPD hasn't really divulged how many searches they conduct, but through public records requests that you guys did, you found out that in 2016, they used this system between 200 and 300 times a day and during that time period. Yeah, and that was a surprise. Um, it was a surprise to me, but it was also a surprise to the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. I, I asked them whether they thought that was a reasonable number and, and they were quite shocked. They thought that that meant that it was being used more as a standard practice, just like, oh, let's just type this number plate in, you know, regardless of whether it really has any use in a lot of crimes. And it was kind of being used just as a kind of a phishing expedition. But, you know, once that data is in the system, officers can access that from a web page, and there are controls about when they're allowed to have a look at it, but that scales up to hundreds of thousands of requests in Los Angeles region right. you know, every year. There's a lot of security cameras all over the place, outside of storefronts, et cetera, at the, at the airports. So where are all these cameras? Yeah, these aren't normally the ones you'll see on the front door of a convenience store or a shop. These are normally city-owned cameras. They're on city-owned infrastructure like bridges, traffic signals, all the airports have them, people coming, going in and out. That's all part of a lot of those cameras were paid for by these security guards from federal government for travel security. And then there'll just be other places, transit centers, universities, shopping malls. We don't really know exactly where all this data right. goes, but a lot of it does flow into or is accessible at least to, to the police. Has there been any reports of these things being misused? Oh, we've had a lot of reports in the past about police abuse of databases. The old stories of cops looking up their ex-partner's car to see where they are, or they might have a grudge with someone on a road raid incident. So there have been incidents of this in the past, and there are some processes in place to detect who is accessing this information and why they want it. So they have to say why they want the information. They have to come up with some kind of reason. This is being used across the country. We're focusing on the LAPD and Palantir specifically. Talk a little bit about the evolution of how they've been using it. These cameras have been around for a while. They were actually first developed in the 
the UK and it was an anti-terrorism measure, but the technology spread very quickly and have been used for at least the last 10 years. Most police departments in the US do use them. And I focused in on Palantir because it's a really interesting company, but also because of the way they use their data. They really sell themselves on their ability to join different data streams together. So it's not just this car in this place at this time, but then they can integrate that with oh, this car may have had a parking ticket from a different database, or the person who owns that car may have some criminal record, or it may have been stopped by the police a certain number of times. Or you know. So what makes it really powerful and also worrying is the way that it can integrate and pull together all these data streams. And what Palantir added recently, a few years ago, was the ability not just to recognize the license plate data, but also the color, the make, and the style of a car. And it could also like pull out little accessories, like it might note if it had like a wheel attached, you know, a spare wheel attached to the back or a particular modification. And so again, this just adds to that feeling of surveillance, right? The big right. brother idea that everything that's <laughs> out there in public is somehow being stored away for people to look at. I mean, we talk a lot about technology on the podcast and privacy issues a lot of times. There is no more expectation of privacy a lot of times. I mean, people are analyzing all of your Google searches and your clicks and what you're buying so they can target you with ads. I mean, you're tracked in so many ways you don't even know anymore. So it's interesting. It's just everybody should know they're always watching you now. Mark <laughs> Mark Harris, freelance writer for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure, Oscar. Anytime. He is a self-described gambling addict. I think it's pretty hypocritical for you to tell me I can't manage my money because I might spend it on drugs. And you're doing the same thing. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, Oscar. Is anything on the internet real now, Miranda? <laughs> I, I, I love this story because everybody was just so interested in it. And it was a, it began as a feel-good story. Now it's turned into a big-time fraud case. We're talking about Mark D'Amico, Kate McClure, Johnny Bobbitt. They're the ones that started this GoFundMe page for Johnny Bobbitt. He's a homeless veteran. The story was that Kate McClure ran out of gas on the side of the road. Johnny Bobbitt, the homeless guy, gave her his last $20. She was able to get gas and go home, and they wanted to pay it forward. That was the name of the GoFundMe page. Pay it forward. Let's raise money for Johnny Bobbitt and turn his life around. And they raised over $400,000 by uh, over 14,000 people that had donated to this, there was just along the way, a lot of weird little details and it all came crashing down. And we found out now that it's all a scam. They concocted this whole story in order to defraud all these people. What do we know about this, Miranda? We've covered this on our podcast a couple of times, including the last time we spoke about it was when the lawsuit talk started happening. Right. And that's where this whole thing started to unravel. Once the conversation about a lawsuit happened, then the Burlington County Prosecutor's Office had to conduct an investigation and they looked into bank records and more than 60,000 text messages between McClure and D'Amico, the couple. Those text messages will always get you. Right. You down. And, and that's what and that's what happened. Uh, Johnny Bobbitt had said, hey, they raised all this money. They're not giving me the amount of money I'm actually due. And that's why he made that lawsuit saying, I, I need to get some of that money back. Let's start at the beginning, because at the beginning, it seemed like this was a good intention. McClure and D'Amico knew Bobbitt before concocting this gas station story because they liked to go to a casino called the Sugar House. 
and Johnny Bobbitt liked to panhandle at the freeway off ramp and they would see him occasionally they'd give him money, but they spoke about him in text messages. Like I can't stop thinking about that guy. We should try to figure out a way to help him get his life back together. Yeah. I love it because in these text messages, it said that they did want to help him get him among other things, food, clothes, a Nintendo switch. Sure. Why not? A job and a home. And then that's they started the uh, paying it forward GoFundMe page. Right. And here's where the problem was, is that McClure and D'Amico may have originally intended to help this guy, but they also wanted to help themselves at the same time. Right. They were both severely in debt. McClure made $43,000 at her job. D'Amico hasn't filed a state tax return since 2015. But when he did, he recorded an income of $15,000 and both had been borrowing money from family members in the weeks leading up to the GoFundMe campaign. Right. And as soon as they got all this money, they immediately started paying off their debts to family members, other nice. people. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do, if you're going to do that, uh, at least, you know, make use of it. When they started it, they had made a goal of $10,000. And when they finally paid off all their debts, it was about $9,800. So, you know, it's all these motivations are coming together. Right. Here's the next bit, Oscar, was that they spent $400,000. Guess how long it took them to spend it? It was just months, yeah, right? Because we were following months. the story. 400 grand gone in four months. McClure and D'Amico spent it on vacations and a new car and purses and things of that nature. And Bob had also spent the funds that he got really quickly. He got a bank account with $25,000 deposited and then another $31,000 deposited. And those were all just gone in weeks from the text messages between McClure and her boyfriend D'Amico in a year you'll be laughing about when you blew hundreds of thousands of dollars why would you be texting this stuff good lord these people are stupid yeah another big part of the story was that they were going to help him get a house and all this stuff I think at one point they even said oh you know he bought a house and it's like the greatest thing ever Johnny Bobbitt never bought a house books and movie deals were in the works you could see that a, a mile away they were doing Tons of news interviews and Media. things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They had a proposed book deal. And from there, they got a recommended lawyer from the literary agent. And through the GoFundMe campaign, McClure kept promoting their feel good story. They appeared on places like Good Morning America, the BBC, Megyn Kelly today, even going as far as reaching out to Ellen DeGeneres, asking her to have them on the show because they just kept wanting money put into their account. Mark D'Amico is a big time gambler. I know Johnny Bobbitt was accusing him of having a problem gambling. Right. Almost a quarter of the money, that $400,000 was withdrawn at or near the casinos, the Sugar House and Vegas. They took a New Year's vacation to Las Vegas and that alone accounted for more than $20,000. Wow. So the funny part to me about this is that Kate McClure immediately started telling her friends and yeah. her family that this was all a farce. She'd said to her friend who texted her, you know, this story is going to backfire. And right. Kate said to her, yeah, I know. Ha ha. Just keep quiet about the gas money. Nobody who knew them believed right. any of this story. And even start. Johnny Bobbitt came to them and said, guys, the heat is getting thick right now. People are asking me questions. I don't know how to respond. Should we skip town? We need to get out of here. Well, because he had no more money, he spent right. it all and they didn't have any more to give him. So he was back panhandling. So people who have been seeing him on Megyn Kelly today are wondering why is this guy who just bought a house standing at the bottom of the freeway again? On their part, GoFundMe has said that they are going to refund all the money that those four, over 14,000 people donated so that's nice there. And 
we'll just have to end up seeing what happens to the three scamsters if, at the end of this. If they hadn't stabbed each other all in the back, yeah. they'd be very wealthy people today. And uh, this, I think they're still going to get a movie deal. And I, for one, will go see that. <laughs> Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.